Lord God, we do indeed give you thanks and praise that you have brought us together with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation down through the centuries, down through the ages, and you have made us one, one family in Christ. We thank you for that gift of grace and for that calling that you've given us to now go and make disciples of all nations. But we do that in a world of division, Lord, and so as we start this series, we ask God that as we come before your word, you would give us open hearts and open minds to receive the message that you have for us this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as I said at the beginning of the service, we're doing this series called Them, in which we're talking about how do we as a church live out our mission to make disciples of all nations in a world that's divided. A world that's divided often along national lines, along racial and ethnic and cultural lines, a world that's divided along political and socioeconomic lines. How do we live out that mission and that calling as a church in a world of us versus them? And as we were getting ready for this series, and as I was preparing to preach this weekend, uh, I came across something. Just a couple of weeks ago, the Barna Group hosted an online conference, and it was on the state of pastors in America. And it was looking at different trends that are taking place in our broader culture, and what it means to be a pastor, to lead the church, to lead the church in a culture that's changing. And one of the sessions specifically focused on race in America and talked about the role that the church plays in speaking into a society and a country where we are still divided along racial lines. And I wanted to share with you some of the statistics that Barna found as they were doing their own research about attitudes surrounding race in this country. And so I invite you to listen to this message along with me. Public outrage over the deaths of Trayvon Martin, Freddie Gray, and many others, along with the assassination of five Dallas police officers, have brought to light the reality of racial tension in America. We witness the pain and outrage of many black Americans as protests spread across the country. But these protests have been met with a mixed response, reflecting an even deeper divide on how Americans view the problem of race in this country. Americans overwhelmingly agree that there is a lot of anger and hostility between different racial groups. This racial tension is further exemplified by differences on whether racism even exists. Compared to whites, black Americans are much more likely to strongly disagree that racism is a problem of the past, and much less likely to agree that reverse racism is a problem today. There is no agreement on why this racial tension exists either. In fact, compared to white Americans, Blacks are much more likely to agree that people of color are put at a social disadvantage because of their race. Blacks are significantly more likely to say they live in fear of police brutality. The truth is, our black brothers and sisters are living in fear that our white brothers and sisters are not. Black born-again Christians are much more likely than others to believe that police unfairly target people of color. But what is perplexing is that evangelicals are even less likely than all other faith segments in America to believe the same. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, It is the tragedy of our nation that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour. But here's the good news. Most Americans believe the church can play an important role in racial reconciliation. But if the church is going to play an important role, it will be essential for Christians, black and white, to communicate with each other. 
racial reconciliation can happen in the church, and it's going to take all of us. What are we to make of those statistics? You know, as I think about the research that Barna did, on one level, it's not surprising. It's not that hard to look around at our country and to realize that our country is divided, that it's a country that's divided along racial lines, that it's a country that's divided along political lines, that it's a country that's divided along socioeconomic lines. But what was surprising to me as I listened to those statistics is what they reveal is that that problem is not just a problem that's out in our society and out in our culture today, it's a problem within our church as well. That oftentimes the church looks no different than the surrounding culture when it comes to this issue of race and racial reconciliation. The very fact that Barna even had this as one of the sessions within this broader conference on the state of pastors in America reveals that there is a need for the church to talk about and to address this issue. In fact, in another uh, well-known study by Robert Putnam uh, in his book, American Grace, he, he researched the American church and he looked at a whole bunch of different factors. Things like the church's attitude about race, the church's attitude about economics and politics and gender and so on and so forth. It's one of the most in-depth studies on the state of the church today. And what he found is he found that most churchgoers attend ethnically or racially homogenous congregations. And our church body is no exception to that rule. The LCMS, our denomination, is 96% white. And as I think about that for a moment and I consider that our calling given to us by Jesus Christ is to go and make disciples of all nations, I have to wonder how seriously we're actually pressing into that mission if the church itself looks more like the culture than it looks like what Christ desires it to be. These are shocking statistics, but one of the things that gives me hope is that statistic at the very end of that video that says this, 73% of Americans believe that the church can play an important role in racial reconciliation. 73% of Americans, not just Christians, which means that our country is looking to the church and saying that you all can help. That the church can be a force for healing, for reconciliation. That the church can be about building bridges rather than erecting barriers. And that our country is looking at us and wondering when will the church be the church. When will the church be the church? And that's part of the reason why we are doing this series called Them. Talk about where those divisions, that us versus them, comes from. But then also so that we will understand what it means to lead courageously in a world of division. We're not doing this because of the recent election. We're not doing this because of protests on TV. We're doing this because we believe that this is the heart of God. Specifically, I'm taking a page from someone else who knew what it meant to lead, to lead courageously in a country of division, and that was President Abraham Lincoln. This is what he had to say about courageous leadership. He said, in great contests, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Both may be and one must be wrong. God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time. And in the present civil war, it is quite possible that God's purpose is something different from the purpose of either party. 
That's what we're doing in this series, is to ask ourselves the question, what is God's purpose? How is it different from the purposes of the different parties that are standing against one another in our country and in our culture today? What is God's dream for the intersection of Race Street and Church Street? What is his hope for us as the church? And I think the answer, as we begin to start thinking about what does it really mean for us to embrace this calling to build bridges, to embrace this calling to be reconcilers, is to realize that what it takes is, it first and foremost, it takes a vision, it takes a dream from God. In fact, we see two dreams, two visions that God gave to his early church to help them understand this calling. The first one was in that first, uh, that, um, Second reading that we read from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and following. See, in Revelation 7, the apostle John, one of Jesus' first disciples, was, has been exiled to the island of Patmos. And it's while he's in exile that God starts to give him visions and dreams. And these visions show him what God is doing behind the scenes in the broader uh, world events of his day. But he, he also got glimpses of the future, of what God would ultimately bring to completion on the day when Jesus Christ comes again. And in one of those visions, this is what he sees. He says that, I looked, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude which no one could count from every tribe, tongue, and nation, worshiping before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John looks out and he sees a multitude which he cannot count. And it is a diverse community from every country, from every nation on the face of the planet. And the question that I want to ask as we look at that vision for just a moment may seem like a simplistic question until you stop and really think about it. My question is this, how did John know? How did he know that they were from every tribe, tongue, and nation? Well, simply, the simple answer is, is because he could see them. Because he looked out and he saw people of different skin colors. He saw people from all four corners of the globe gathered together as one. How does he know that they're praising God in their own tongues, in their own languages? Because he can hear them. He can hear them giving praise to God in their native languages, which means that that heavenly worship, that community that God is bringing together is brought together, yes, by Jesus Christ. But that unity in Jesus doesn't erase their diversity. Rather, it's their common identity as the family of God that makes that gathering so beautiful. That makes those differences and that diversity so wonderful for John to behold. Because, ladies and gentlemen, when we get to heaven, yes, we will sing Alleluia and we'll sing the church's one foundation. But we will do it standing shoulder to shoulder with brothers and sisters who will say, Alabare a mi Señor. That we will be worshiping side by side with brothers and sisters who are singing not only in English and in Spanish, but singing also in Mandarin and in Tagalog. Who will be singing in Greek and Hebrew. Who will be singing in, Ar in Arabic and in Portuguese. 
It means that, yes, when we get to heaven, there will be organ music, but there will also be guitars, and there will be drums. There will be tambourines. There will be people, yes, speak, singing Gregorian chant, but there will also be gospel choirs jumping up and down and singing at the top of their lungs about the praises of their Savior and Lord. It's going to be a beautiful and awe-inspiring gathering. But as I think about that dream, it makes Martin Luther King's words that much more haunting to me. But he says it's the tragedy of our nation that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. Because when I look around, I realize we have a lot of work to do as a church. If we're moving toward that heavenly gathering in which people from every tribe, tongue, and nation is gathered together before the throne and before the Lamb. And so the question that I want to ask for us as the church today is how do we get there? How do we get from here, from this place of division, to here, this place of beautiful and rich unity in diversity? How does the church become a place of extravagance and beautiful reconciliation in a world that is divided? I think the answer is, is first and foremost, we need a vision from God. In fact, that's exactly what the Apostle Peter gets in our reading from Acts chapter 10. And so that reading that I want us to look for a moment to understand the vision that God gives him and what that might have to teach us today as God's church, God's people now in 21st century America. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 10 with me. Uh, the page number in your few Bibles is actually printed in your bulletin. So if you want to open up your few Bible as well, I'd invite you to go there with me. Acts chapter 10 takes place, it's one long story about how God moves Peter from where he's at into relationship with someone who is from a different culture, a different background than him, for the sake of spreading the gospel. It begins in Acts chapter 10 verse 1 with a man named Cornelius, and we learn something about Cornelius. We learn that Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He is an officer in the Roman army. He's from a pagan background. And yet what we learn is that he actually worships God. He's a worshiper of the one true God. And it's one day while he's praying that God gives him a vision. And, the vision, and in the vision, God tells him, send some men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. And so Cornelius sends, sends some emissaries to Joppa to go get Peter. And at the same time that these men are on their way to go get him, Peter is up on the roof of Simon's house, and he's doing what he normally does. He's praying. He's praying to God, and it's in that moment of prayer that God gives him a vision. Gives him a vision. And what's interesting is the vision that God gives him, because God is about to move Peter into a cross-cultural relationship. He's about to move Peter into a relationship with someone who's not of the same background as him. And yet the vision that he gives Peter is not a Revelation 7-9 vision. He doesn't give him this picture of all tribes, tongues, and nations worshiping before the throne and worshiping before the Lamb. What vision does he give Peter? What does Peter see? It's a sheet filled with food. The vision that God gives Peter is he gives him basically a menu. And at first, it's kind of like, that is weird. That is, a strange, that is a strange vision for you to be giving to Peter if you want him to get that he's about to enter into a cross-cultural relationship with a Gentile. That is, it's weird unless we 
can put ourselves in Peter's shoes, unless we can put ourselves back in, in what it would have been like to be a first century Jewish person. Because you see, the Jewish people had very clear understandings of what was holy and what was not, of what was considered ceremonially clean and what wasn't. You see, throughout the Old Testament times, there was this idea that there were certain things uh, and things that you could do that were considered holy. They were considered clean, and then there were things that you should avoid so, that, uh, so as not to become unclean. And this, this mattered for them because as long as you were ceremonially clean, you could go up to the temple and worship in Jerusalem. As long as you were ceremonially clean, you could go to the synagogue on Sabbath. As long as you were ceremonially clean, you could be a part of, of the community. And this extended to every aspect of life so that even the clothes that they wore, they were never mixed clothing. It was always of one kind of cloth, not another. Or it went to how they spent their time, that the Sabbath was a holy day set aside. Or it went to the, even down to, to the foods that they ate on a daily basis. And bad news for you bacon lovers, like bacon was one of the things that was considered unclean. Along with shellfish, you couldn't have shellfish. And so for those of you who like bacon or red lobster, that was a no-no. There were other kinds of foods that you couldn't eat, like badgers. You weren't supposed to eat the honey badger. I mean, that's just, the honey badger is not sweet. Do not eat it. Okay, but this is how far it extended. Every aspect of life was divided into clean and unclean for them, except for one. The clean and unclean division did not apply to people. And in fact, in the Old Testament, what we see is that the relationship that the Israelites were supposed to have with the Gentiles, with the nations, was supposed to be a relationship of harmony. In fact, if you read through the Old Testament, Gentiles were seen as equals to the point where there were actually Gentiles featured prominently in King David's court. The Gentiles were actually the commanders of his armies, that he was friends with them. That they were to be shown hospitality and love so that in the Torah it says you should not abuse the foreigner and the alien, but you should extend hospitality to them. You should care for them and provide for their needs. That actually people of other nations could inherit property in Israel and they could even come and offer sacrifices in the temple. Clean and unclean was not supposed to extend to people because at the very beginning of scripture it says that God tells them that I have made mankind in my own image. And so there was not to be this division of unclean and clean. But by the time you get to Peter's day and to Jesus' day, God's word hadn't changed, but attitudes about Gentiles had. So that you get to New Testament times, and now Gentiles, people of other nations, are scorned and hated. They are actually seen as unclean. And children from mixed marriages were considered illegitimate. They couldn't actually inherit property in Israel. Furthermore, Gentiles couldn't enter the temple, and they were considered enemies of God. Attitudes had changed about people. And what God is doing in this vision to Peter is he's using this kind of clean and unclean distinction to open Peter's eyes to the deeper prejudices that he holds in his heart. Because God gives him this sheet that comes down from heaven and he says, hey, Peter, take and kill and eat. And he says, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happens three times. And then when the vision ends, there's a knock on the door. The men from Cornelius have arrived. 
Because you see, Peter could have gotten that menu and, and walked out of that vision being like, yeah, okay, I, I'll eat the things that you say are clean. It's time to go to Joe's Crab Shack. But no, God says, there's some men looking for you. The Holy Spirit comes and shows him this isn't a vision about food. This is a vision about people. There are men looking for you, and I want you to go with them. I said at the beginning of the service, and I'll say again, this journey of reconciliation always begins with where we are, but it very, very quickly moves from prayer into relationship. God calls Peter into relationship with these men. He goes on a road trip with these men to the point where when he finally arrives at Cornelius' house, he says something quite surprising. Because we learn that Cornelius, when Peter shows up, Cornelius falls down at Peter's feet and starts to worship him. And Peter responds in a really interesting way. Because see, if Peter was still holding on to those grudges and those prejudices, he could have looked at Cornelius dropping down at his feet. And he could have immediately assumed he's a pagan, he's a polytheist, and he could have said, hey man, get up. The only God you're supposed to worship is God in heaven. But that's not, exi- that's not what Peter says. What does he say? He says, stand up, for I'm only a man myself. See, Peter's starting to realize that Cornelius and I, we're not all that different. He says, stand up, I'm just a man too, I'm just like you. But then he goes on and he says, you know, according to our traditions, I'm not even supposed to be in your house, but, but I came. So tell me why you've sent for me. And, and Cornelius tells him this story about God sending an angel and appearing to him in a vision. And then Cornelius says, now I'd like to know why. Why has God brought you here? And I love these words, these opening words from Peter. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who hears him and does what is right. Every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right. Peter understands in this moment that God doesn't show favoritism. That he and Cornelius are one. They're one because of what Jesus Christ has done. And this is actually a reality that we see repeated over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. He talks about the work that Jesus Christ has done, and this is what he says. He says, remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, talking about Gentiles. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made the two groups one. And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And then in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. What I love about this passage is Paul doesn't separate our reconciliation with God from our reconciliation from, with one another. In fact, in Paul's mind, they're one in the same thing. They go hand in hand. He says, through Jesus Christ, God has reconciled us to himself and to each other. That means that we are a new family, a new humanity, one people. And Peter starts to get that and he realizes He realizes in this moment with Cornelius that because of Jesus Christ, he and Cornelius are one. Both made in the image of God, both redeemed by his his grace through Jesus Christ. 
You see, Peter's story gives us insight in what it means for us, what it means for us to embrace that calling to be bridge builders in a world of barriers. He says our calling will take us from prayer, from where we're at into relationship with others. It starts with a vision, but it moves into community. And I remember when this really kind of hit home for me, it was when I was doing ministry at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I've talked about this before, but UIC is this amazingly diverse uh, university. But if you walk through the student union, you find that it's divided along the same lines as the rest of our society, so that you can actually walk from one end of the student union to the other, and you know where the lounge is that the Muslim students are in, and the lounge that, that the black students are in, and the lounge that the Latino students are in, and the lounge that the uh, Filipino students are in, and the Indian American students are in, and so on and so forth. You know where all these places are. And our mission as a ministry on that campus was to be a people who in our community one another reflected the reconciliation that we had with God through Christ. That was our hope. We wanted to be one of those few places on campus where people of every background could come together as family. And as I was working in that community, I remember one year kind of looking around, and I, and I looked at our chapter, and I realized that we had Latino students there, and we had Asian students there, that we had Indian students there, we had white students there, but there was one community that we didn't have there, and that was actually the black community. And I was really wrestling with that. And I was praying and I was asking God, what do, what do we need to do as a community to reach this community and to show them love and to enter into relationship? And one of the things that God was just laying on my heart is he said, don't wait for them to walk through your doors. Go to where they are. Meet them where they're at. I had a friend at that time who was involved in the gospel choir. And so I asked her, I was like, hey, can I, can I go to gospel choir with you? And she's just like, yes, you can totally come. I was like, is it okay that I'm not a student? She's like, oh, we don't care. And so I, I ended up going with her. She told me where, where they were going to meet up. And so I was there, and I walked into the room, and I was the only white dude in the whole room. And they turned around, and they looked at me, and they are just like, hey! And they just, like, welcomed me in and started to embrace me. And they were like, what's your name? What are you doing here? And I was just like, well, my name is Nick. And I started just kind of sharing. And, uh, and they said, awesome, man. Well, do, do you sing? And I was like, well, kind of. And they're like, we're going to fix that. <laughs> like, what do you sing? I was like, I'm a tenor. And they're just like, we need a tenor. I looked forward to gospel choir every single week. It was one of my favorite places to go. Because they welcomed me with such hospitality, with such openness. But I learned a couple things while I was in gospel choir. First thing is I learned a little something about worship. Because gospel music is very, very different from some of the other music I was used to in church. Because in gospel choir, oftentimes when you really get into a song, I mean really get into a song, there's a certain chorus or there's a certain refrain, and you sing it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I remember at one point pulling aside one of the guys, uh, Stephen, and I was just like, hey, man, why do we do that? Like, why, why, why do we sing these, these choruses over and over again? I mean, every time it gets a little louder, gets a little more energetic. But I'm like, why do we do that? And he said, because, Nick, it's one thing to sing about hope. It's another thing to let that hope go deep into your soul. He said, every time we sing that chorus line, it goes a little deeper. And we sing it again, and it goes a little deeper. And we sing it again, and it goes a little deeper until it's not just in our mouths, it's in our heart. And in my community where I grew up, we don't have very many reasons for hope. And so we sing until it gets into our soul. 
I learned to appreciate gospel music. I love gospel music. But I also learned to appreciate Stephen. Because I remember sitting down with him and saying, hey man, you, you, told me, you told me that there's not many reasons for hope in your community growing up. What do you mean by that? And he told me his story. He told me what it was like to grow up on the south side of Chicago. He told me what it was like to know that church was the only safe place he could go because in his neighborhood you were worried. You were worried about drive-by shootings. You were worried about drugs. He told me about how hard it was to know where your next meal was going to come from because mom was working two jobs and neither one of them paid very well. What it was like to grow up and not know, da- you know, not know his dad. He told me about what it was like when the cops drive down the street. He said, when cops drive down the street, that doesn't make me feel safe. It's actually quite scary. And so we'd go inside and we'd find ways to make ourselves scarce. That opened my eyes to a whole nother world, a whole nother story that I'd never seen before. And if I was going to be serious, if I was going to be serious about this calling to make disciples of all nations, then I needed to be willing to enter into Stephen's story and to understand, to listen and to walk with him in the midst of pain. And to, yes, stand shoulder to shoulder with him and sing about hope. That's what it meant to live out that calling as a Christian. That's what it practically means for us is that we can be here and we can sing, we can pray. We can pray that God would bless the whole world and, the, and we can pray for the well-being of the church of God. We can sing about all nations and tribes and tongues, but the truth is, is it can't just stay here. It has to move out into relationship. It has to move out into community if we're truly going to live that out as a family of faith. And that can be uncomfortable Let me talk about practically how uncomfortable that can be. What it might mean is that next time you're on social media and somebody throws up the hashtag Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter and the debate starts and people start yelling, don't throw up your own hashtag in response. Rather say, you know what, I need to to take that person out to coffee. I need to understand that story. There's something there that I don't get. Or when somebody runs around waving a Trump sign, or somebody runs around waving a Trump is not my president sign, that we don't immediately respond with, well, constitutionally, yes, he is. But we stop and we say, what do you mean? Why does that matter to you? Help me understand. It means that we have to get outside of our comfort zone just a little bit and into someone else's story, into their shoes. To really appreciate what it really means to be family and not to judge and not to immediately go to, de- to defending ourselves. The question we have to ask is, is, am I willing to look at the world through someone else's eyes, someone who is different than me? I had to learn to look at the world through Stephen's eyes. And I'm glad. Because God gave me a bigger perspective on the world and on my calling and on what it meant to be family with this man of faith. That's where the healing starts. That's where it begins. It starts with a vision that moves us out into community. It looks at barriers and seeks to tear them down so that we see what's beautiful. And it calls us to be agents of bridge building and reconciliation in a world that's divided. It all starts with a vision from God, the power of his Holy Spirit, and the gift of relationship. And so I want to pray.
I would invite you to bow your heads and to pray with me. Lord God, we recognize that we live in a world of division, and oftentimes when we're confronted with difference, our instinct is to defend. And God, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would help us to restrain that tendency, that we would have a heart to listen, a willingness to enter into relationship, that we would be slow to judge and very, very quick to hear. And Lord, I pray that our community would be a reconciling community, that we would be a people who reach people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. But that starts with you reminding us daily of the vision that you have for your church. And that through Jesus Christ, out of our many divisions, you have made one new people, one new family of faith. May that motivate us and lead us into relationship with our brothers and sisters. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for spending some time in God's Word with us during this message. It was recorded live in worship at Trinity Church in Lyle, Illinois, where God is leading us on our mission to look, live, and love more like Jesus. Would you like to know more about a relationship with Christ or more about Trinity, who we are, what we believe, and where and when you might join us in worship or a growth group? Please visit our website at tlc4u.org. That's the letters T-L-C, the number four, and the letter U.org. May God bless you and yours abundantly through Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening.